we're at a, a turning point, I think, where we have uh, decisions to make that will kind of control the what the future looks like. Um, and obviously that future is, is um, more uncertain now uh, in, in the time of COVID. But um, I'm, I'm certainly not one to kind of uh, push the doom and gloom or the existential threat, but it, mm -hmm. it, there's definitely risks out there. Um, a lot of what I do is trying to quantify uh, risk, um, especially from the economic side, and mm -hmm. um, not just to look at, you know, what do we most likely expect in the future, but to try and get a sense for what are what are some of the best case scenarios, what are some of the worst case scenarios. Uh, and so not a very satisfying answer to the question, but the answer <laughs> uh, possibly and hopefully not if we make the right decisions. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to solpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a PhD candidate in energy and energy and resources at UC Berkeley. Um, the more succinct way to say that is he's a climate scientist. For us people who don't know what what that actually means, um, he is a backcountry skier and also sometimes likes climbing. Uh, welcome to the show, Ian Bolliger. Thanks very much, Jesse. Happy to be here. I almost we. As I often say when I begin these episodes, I try and do my best not to stumble over people's names. And we were just talking about mispronunciations of your last name, and I almost did it, but I caught myself right at the last second. I nailed it. <laughs> so the the uh, pressing question of the day, we'll just dive off the deep end here, is we, we know when we're thinking about climate change, um, since this is your field of study, I have to ask you, uh, are we going to make it or are we doomed? Uh, that's, uh, that's obviously a tough question. And probably there are, are uh, other societal issues right now that, that lead us closer to the brink uh, in the short term than climate right. change. Right. Um, but uh, it's certainly kind of we're, we're at a, a turning point, I think, where we have uh, decisions to make that will kind of control the, what the future looks like. Um, and obviously that future is, is um, more uncertain now uh, in, in the time of COVID. But um, I'm, I'm certainly not one to kind of uh, push the doom and gloom or the existential threat, but it, mm -hmm. it, there's definitely risks out there. Um, a lot of what I do is trying to quantify uh, risk, um, especially from the economic side, and mm -hmm. um, not just to look at, you know, what do we most likely expect in the future, but to try and get a sense for what are what are some of the best case scenarios, what are some of the worst case scenarios, uh, and so not a very satisfying answer to the question, but the answer uh, possibly and hopefully not if we make the right decisions. I think I try to be uh, the eternal optimist on things like this, where it's like, no, it'll be fine, like we'll figure it out. But at the same time, I, I, I'll, the the realist in me goes, well, this is a very mundane example, but like <clears throat> thinking about things that have limits, um, like my pen, for example. If I use my pen long enough, it runs out of ink, and no, no matter how much I want it to write more, it doesn't have any more ink. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, it's. I feel like I believe in the human spirit and, and people's ingenuity to overcome problems, but I also know that sometimes you just drove off a cliff, and you, you can't not 
you have to fall. Like that's the only option you have at that point. You you can't back up. You're in the middle of the air. Yeah. So that I think that's what I get concerned with, and kind of my facetious question about are we going to make it is, you know, we have we already here, but right here about the inflection points, and are we past that point, or do we really have, um, you know, the ability to curb or maintain a more hospitable environment for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we certainly have that ability. Um, it gets harder and harder uh, each day that we kind of don't take the decisive action that's needed. Um, but I think I think you'd be hard pressed to say that we're beyond um, any sort of capacity to uh, affect change. And I think that's kind of um, that's a that's a state of the world that we try to we try to make clear because it's it's an overwhelming problem. And I think a lot of times people can um, draw away from that sentiment saying, okay, well, we're past the edge now and like there's nothing really we can do about it at this point. And I think right. that quick transition between like, oh, this isn't a problem and oh, it's a problem, but it's too late to do anything about it is, is kind of a dangerous uh, step to make without the uh, middle point, which is recognizing um, what the potential impacts of climate change may be, which is kind of where my work falls, trying to mm -hmm. quantify what those impacts are. Um, and then trying to see what decisions make the most sense to avoid the, the biggest negative impacts, because um, a lot of those decisions do take upfront investments. And so trying to understand what the benefits are long term really helps those cost benefit decisions um, when we think about trying to um, invest in whether it's renewable energy sources or afforestation or a variety of different technologies and approaches and societal transitions that can that can help us mitigate um, some of the effects of climate change. Yeah, well, it was like. I feel like you or the people like you are obviously going to have the knowledge and access to more data to affect like greater change than say me or average Joe that really doesn't have what I would consider valid knowledge. You know, like we learn things through pop articles and stuff, but it, it, I'm always, I always try to be a little skeptical because the prerogative of a journalist is, journalist is to get you to read not necessarily to present the facts yeah so you know we we get those um but i think when we think about like you mentioned the the problem of climate change being it's a global scale and and then us as individuals we live in a very local environment you know I, i'm in my room i'm not around the planet so you get this almost like well I'm just one person. What can I do? Kind of mentality. Yeah, yeah. Which which I talked about with um, Maddie Steer a few weeks ago, um, episode forty three, I believe it was, and she's researching uh, the effects of micro microplastics in the oceans. Mm -hmm. And she was just like, "Well, yeah, but just like voting, one person collectively, all of these one people together, you know, change their habits to." Uh, in our case here with this conversation, slow the tide of change, of climate change, by you know, doing certain things versus like you're talking about larger investments in you know changing over an energy grid or something, which as individuals we don't have as much control over. Yeah, totally. So I think I think the way I approach um, my research and, and definitely the folks that I collaborate with as well, um, 
I, I think the point that you're making is, is really valid and that people respond to their local environment and what they perceive is affecting their local environment. Mm -hmm. um, and so we try to make that connection um, to whatever our audience is experiencing. Um, so one of the projects I'm working on right now is trying to, to quantify what the economic impacts of changes to hurricane patterns and sea level rise, like the combination of sea level rise and changes to hurricane patterns, right. um, what those economic consequences might be for coastal regions. And we try to do that keeping in mind who the audience might be. So it might be um, governments at the municipal or state level that are worried about um, infrastructure damage and are worried about maybe at the municipal level, their municipal bonds may, um, the rates may increase. And, and so they're worried about a lot of these kind of financial challenges. Um, and then when we're communicating to the public, we're trying to develop this hyper-local climate risk information so that people understand in their city and their zip code and their county, um, what, what do we see the biggest impacts being and, and kind of what does that mean for um, oftentimes in our research, the local economy, but also for um, human health and um, uh, uh, ecological sustainability and, and a variety of potential impacts. So it's kind of this this cross between, or, or, or not a cross, but like recognizing who the audience is and making sure that the message is is appropriate for that audience. Because you're totally right that it's easy for an individual person to zone out and say, yeah, I think uh, like including renewable energy in the like trillion dollar stimulus package is a good idea, but like I'm not going to like, what am I going to do about that? Um, mm -hmm. They're trying to connect that to what the local impacts are, I think. Um, helps people um, make those kind of cost-benefit analyses work in their head. And then the collective voice, I think, helps us drive drive policy. Um, uh, but not just policy, also, you know, business and um, variety of sectors um, rather than just the government. So, so how much of your job is, I'll, I'll say job, but uh, <laughs> work... <laughs> Um, I was like, how much of your work is research and how much of it, how much of it is marketing? Because as you're describing it, I'm like, you're basically marketing this, this research when you're talking about finding like message audience fit, essentially, is I need to make sure that the audience, the people I'm talking to, that the information I'm giving them is relevant to them and they know how it affects them. So that's, I mean, that's, that's marketing one-on-one basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, I completely get that. I think um, most academics would, would kind of like uh, cringe at the word marketing. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, so I, I think I think people will, would generally try and not classify it that way. But it is like trying to say, it's trying to say, look, what what about my research can be the most relevant to people? Um, right. wh why am I studying what I'm studying? I obviously didn't just pick this topic out of the blue because it seemed, you know, intellectually interesting and mm -hmm suddenly realized there's a, a some sort of real world connection. I, I got into this research because of that and because I thought that there was um, information that needed to be shared and um, and kind of used to, to help us improve our decision making. Um, and so I think the, the, the key difference there is that we try to um, craft the what we focus on um, and how we message things based on what we believe will be the most relevant for society, but not what the results are. And so there are some cases where, where I and groups that I've worked on have presented results that suggest climate change will have a large impact on outcome X, let's say mortality in this region, 
but it won't do much in this region. Maybe mortality will decrease. Maybe um, agricultural yields will increase in certain areas. So we try to be agnostic with what the results are. It's not all trying to trying to back up our our message, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know any scientist in this field who argues that they have no opinion or no uh, um, kind of like belief that they should try and make their results actionable, I think is, is doing a disservice to the reason that we do this research. Yeah. Um, so I actually want to back up a little bit. Yeah. So I'm on board with you. So if I give you a hard time, it's for the sake of argument. No, please. Um, <laughs> so we're here for. <laughs> so, you know, you have, there are, and most likely they're not listening to this particular podcast, uh, but if they are, um, people that say, you know, climate change is not man-made and we don't have an impact. It's part of a natural cycle. Um, what, you know, what data do we have to say that it is, um, in fact, of our making? Um, and then thinking about that, uh, I guess I'll follow up with kind of where we are right now, I guess, after you, after you answer that. Yeah. Um, nope, I hear, I hear that a lot. Uh, and it's, it's certainly, um, uh, Yale puts out a lot of, uh, um, climate, climate awareness polls and does a lot of good research on, on kind of what the public is thinking about climate change. And that has shifted a lot lately. I think there's a, a very noticeable transition where people are, are starting to, um, agree with the like scientific consensus that, mm-hmm. Global, that climate change is happening, that it's man-made, um, and that it's projected to be fairly substantial, um, increasing uh, in terms of the, the overall changes um, over the course of this century. Uh, so I think more, more people are getting on board with that. The argument, um, I, I think people often point to the like, climate has always changed throughout history argument. Um, right. Uh, which makes, which kind of like sounds reasonable at the outset, but the, the time scales at which things are changing are so incredibly, um, are, are, are so much quicker than has ever been seen before in terms of like geologic time and, and um, climate change throughout the um, paleoclimate record. So it's, it's, um, it's pretty inconceivable that these events are uh, simply due to um, natural cycles. There's a variety of cycles that people point to, like the eccentricity of the Earth's orbit and how it's um, related to the sun, as well as kind of like a variety of like geological mechanisms that affect mm-hmm. how, how um, the level of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. But the timescales are so different that it, there's pretty much no possible way that, um, that those could be causing the changes we're seeing right now. I also want to just flag one. Um, uh, th- there's been some research recently looking at uh, the accuracy, the like predictive skill of climate models as the kind of first ones came out several decades ago, and they've progressively gotten more and more sophisticated and improved more and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the findings are actually that the initial models, uh, which kind of relied on very basic understanding of how human uh, human ma- human generated greenhouse gas emissions would affect temperatures, have actually um, performed really well um, as they started to predict the years ahead that we've now experienced, but which those models had no ability to, to know ahead of time. And so mm-hmm. I think that's further evidence that our, our fundamental understanding of, of these processes, which are not incredibly complex, um, it, is accurate and, and kind of like helps us, helps us understand 
um, why the world looks as it does today versus the way it did several decades ago. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up just because I, I forgot it. And, and that's the nice thing about having something that specializes in it because um, you remember all these things. Um, <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> right. There's a lot. One thing I'm, I'll be curious to see amid, you know, and I'm hoping this is a relevant conversation past this point in time, but obviously right now we're dealing with um, economic shutdown, lockdowns, and stay-at-home orders with COVID. And, you know, we, we've seen almost immediately that reduction in, um, I'll say, pollution as a catch-all sure. uh, from China and in industry as everything has to shut down. And there have been... I, there have been stories, though I don't know how data-based they are, about, you know, uh, water clearing up in Venice and air quality improving and all these kind of things. So I'll be interested to see out of all of this calamity, because I'm, I'm sure, or at least keeping my fingers crossed, hoping that somebody is tracking all of the data so that we have a more definitive, like, hey, if we shut all these things off, like, this happens like there's a very demonstrable effect of on and off between these two yeah. things and and how the climate is affected yeah no that's that's a great point um it's it's kind of people are looking for ways to to use this event as um what we often call a natural experiment where something exogenous something like kind of that's unrelated to the state of the economy or whatever just changes all of a sudden. Something that's not, I shouldn't say unrelated, but um, not caused by changes uh, in the economy. It's kind of this exogenous um, event. Um, so I think while everybody right now is, is um, rightly focused on solving the crisis at hand, um, I think there is, there are lots of folks in the science world and the economics world that are thinking about, um, what can we use this for from a data standpoint? Um, mm -hmm. And it's obviously, again, it's not the pressing um, uh, challenge at hand, but it will be something that can be very useful in understanding what effects these have on natural systems. I think the challenge is that um, it's not just, so like for instance, um, I, I heard one statistic that um, clear sky days in Beijing have increased by like 25%. Um, and so when you try to, especially when you're when you're in the business that I am, which is trying to connect environmental changes to societal changes. So how does climate change affect the economy, et cetera? Obviously, that this using this event gets much harder because it's not only just clearing up the skies, but it's also devastating our economy. And so trying right. to like uncorrelate those things makes it challenging. But it'll be the job of a lot of um, scientists and economists in the years to come to try and see what we can see what information we can gain from this event that kind of drastically changed the the rate at which pollution is occurring as well as a variety of other things mm -hmm. so uh you mentioned earlier in particular um you're working on uh, the effects of hurricanes and, and hurricane systems on economies am i correct in saying that yeah yeah exactly so what uh economic damages caused by hurricanes in coastal regions um, the goal is trying to understand how that may change um, in future climates. So that is it in a, a kind of shorthand way. Is that a way to determine um, how or if coastal regions will basically become 
inhospitable or uneconomical to live in because of, say, increased intensity or increased frequency from hurricanes? Yeah, yeah. The question is, like, what will these costs be? Um, it kind of the, the, the first order question is, what will these costs be if we don't do anything? If we kind of leave people, everybody kind of, like, continues to develop coastal regions as we have been. Here in the U.S., we've actually developed um, the coast uh, to a very large degree, um, probably inconsistent with our understanding of risk in those regions. So even mm -hmm. after climate change, I think um, a, lot, a lot of the physical capital is distributed in a way that's not um, optimal given current hurricane risk. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to understand that, and then also if it's changing, what are the what are the kind of the new risks that where where do these new risks pop up, um, and where do they increase, where do they decrease, um, and so yeah, so trying to figure out what places will not necessarily be uninhabitable, but which will require substantial um, engineering measures to try and make them reasonable places to live in, and then we have to balance mm -hmm. that with those costs and say, all right, is this does this make sense to 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 do this? Because it's never going to be the case that um, it's easy to just move people or move buildings, right. et cetera. So there's there's very clear motivations to try and protect a lot of these areas, um, mm. but that comes at a high cost, and so we have to um, we have to balance all these things. Governments are always trying to make decisions, right, between you know do we build a seawall here or do we build another school, and kind of we have to balance. Those, those are both competing objectives for a, a finite resource, which is those government funds. And so just having a better sense for, for what that economic risk is helps, um, helps governments make those decisions. Um, it helps um, any sort of company that's managing a bunch of physical assets decide, you know, how they allocate um, that portfolio, et cetera. Yeah. So it, I remember um, that makes me think about New Orleans and Obviously, they were devastated and had to rebuild, and are, as I understand it, still really kind of in the process of rebuilding, both in terms of um, infrastructure and just human capital. But it's like, I, I can't remember who it is. I wish I could knew who to attribute this to, but somebody made the comment, some kind of TV personality, about why would you try to rebuild uh, a city that is below sea level that's so subject to you know these kind of events and it's like, you know, as you mentioned, number one, it's hard to move people, all of the buildings, like you have sunk capital in all of those things where it's like, if you're going to replace them, they cost more to replace them than to repair them. So, and then where does that money come from? Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not an easy answer. And yeah. like from, you know, from the viewpoint, from the like, typical economist viewpoint, you look at it and you say, okay, maybe it would be better to just move this entire city, but that's not taking into account all of the costs that people would bear leaving the society that they live in to go be transplanted into some entirely new place. And so, uh, you know, the typical, I keep kind of going back to the economist in me, which is only part of <laughs> what I do, but the typical economist would say, all right, we just need to quantify those, those costs and mm -hmm. try and um, but that's difficult to do, right? There's, you can't always put a price on like what it, what the value is for somebody staying in a certain location, but we certainly try to do that and try yeah. to take into account, you know, what are those costs of shifting of, of, um, abandonment of certain locations and moving. Um, and it's not, those are, those are massive decisions. And so we want to make sure we have all the information that we possibly can to try and understand how do we, how do we protect New Orleans? 
Um, and for areas we can't protect, how do we, um, what do we do about it then? Um, but I think uh, it's a, it's a kind of easy gut reaction to say we shouldn't be rebuilding. We should, we should just be, you know, constructing somewhere else. But yeah, that comes from folks that haven't lived there. I mean, New Orleans is kind of a, a, a society and a place that um, has a lot of value in preserving Mm -hmm. uh, regardless. And so we need to take that into, into account when we're trying to make these decisions. That's one thing I'm curious about is that, you know, obviously we can say, we can go at it from the, um, what, what's the name? The, the, like an insurance adjuster's perspective and say, well, the replacement value of this building is X and to replace all the streets and the plumbing and everything and the sewer system and all the infrastructure is going to be Y. And we can go at it from that, standpoint and say okay now we know how many dollars it'll cost to reconstruct new orleans except we're gonna put it in the middle of missouri now right uh, you know well away from the coast but there i feel like it's got to be harder and i want to know if you if you do this work to quantify the cost of um culture in a place you know because even if you took all of the people of new orleans and move them someplace and like even like built the city the exact same i feel like you would still fundamentally change the culture of the place because it no longer exists in the original place and that culture is in our minds yeah. so I, i'm just curious if, if you work on that aspect yeah. of it that that's a, that's a little a field from what i what i focus on um and uh it's it's certainly like valuable and something that that a lot of folks are thinking about i i, I don't want to make it seem like uh we're like ready to move new orleans and there's like plans in place to put it right, right. To, to be there's clear many... i'm the one that has latched on to new orleans <laughs> he did not do that i i did that so yeah no but i, I mean and, and new orleans is not the only example right there's a lot of low-lying islands that are already becoming uninhabitable with climate change yeah new orleans is, is a focus for us because we're here in the u.s and because it's a highly densely populated populated area mm -hmm. but people uh in islands around the world their livelihoods their culture their history is is threatened um and so we need to think about kind of incorporate or we need to incorporate that into our decision making and the exact mechanism by which you incorporate that into decision making is kind of like that's a challenging point and when you when you when you suggest like how do we kind of put a value on what it means to move a society it's tough it's really hard it's not it's not something that at the moment i focus on in particular um i generally focus on you know what are the impacts if we leave everything in place and then trying to trying to quantify the the other costs which are like all right what if we make a decision what does it mean to to move people around mm -hmm. uh, it's not something i focus on but it, it definitely is a is a um uh an active area of research a lot of times um again from the economist side people use these uh willingness to pay studies where they try and see like when people for instance for example if people moved um for a job like what would what would be the raise in salary? What 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 have been the raises in salary that cause people to move? And so you try and say, all right, people aren't going to move if they have if they if the new job offer is like the same salary for the same position, um, because you have you're set up in where you are. You have a lot of kind of like benefits to not uprooting your life. Mm -hmm. And so, just from a from a 
very kind of like cold-hearted economic standpoint, you try and say, all right, what is the what is the willingness to pay um, of uh, of these people to move locations? So alternatively, like how much would they require to be paid extra in order to to um, uproot their lives? And so you can try and come at it from that way, but that's still kind of from an individual level, and you 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 can still fail to get the overall cultural value um, of a given place, which is much harder to to quantify as in terms of dollars or any other metric you might come up with. Yeah. So I, I know, um, thinking about what you do, I like my brain starts lighting up cause I, I like numbers. So I majored in math and in college, uh, theoretical math. Unfortunately, there was no applied option <laughs> where I went. Um, your classes were probably way, way more intense than mine. Were. <laughs> we, well, I, people like, Sometimes people give me a hard time about numbers. They'll be like, yeah, can you do this math for me? And I'm like, hey, just so you know, we stopped talking about numbers after the first two years of college. So, like, uh, numbers yeah. are almost no longer a thing that we concerned ourselves with. Yeah. Um, but, like, I love – I love it. just – there's something about numbers I love. So it, I, I think about that. So, so I'm wondering for you, do you – you know, you mentioned there, there was – a particular reason that you got into what you're doing is it a matter of saying this is the rabbit hole i've kind of found myself falling down and it's really interesting and it's just kind of this like um mental excitement for yourself or or do you feel like there's an overall larger objective you'd like to achieve yeah absolutely um Definitely the latter, um, although some of the details of what I study right now, hurricanes in particular, were not something that I grew up with. I'm from Seattle. Um, hurricanes were not a, a, a challenge that we thought about frequently in right. Seattle. Um, so, so that was kind of uh, sort of the luck of the, the projects that kind of uh, worked out while I was in grad school. Mm. But thinking in particular about extreme events and what climate change means for extreme events um, is kind of the place that I um, uh, will be working in, I think, for, for the long term. Um, so I kind of, maybe just to provide some context, give, give it like the, the high level view of where I came from. So I also studied applied math, uh, in my case, mm -hmm. <laughs> as an undergrad, and, and also um, kind of that my area of application was, was earth and planetary science. So I did a little bit of kind of the physical climate science at that point, um, but I, I kind of graduated and, and realized that my my interest was in like what are what does this mean for society and how do we how do we deal with it um not not um not as much how do we like better understand the physical system which helps us with all of these all of the kind of downstream impacts work but i mm -hmm. I, I definitely wanted to be focused more on the impacts work um so i worked for for three years in global health um trying to measure global health around the world and understand how that's changing over time and then coming to grad school started to blend that back into the, the, the climate science side. And so trying to think about how do we use some of these methods that we use to, to, to measure um, societal change uh, in, a, in the context of understanding climate impacts. And so that's, that's kind of where I, I have situated myself now and where I hope to, to work in the future is how do we provide the like actionable information that allows mm -hmm. people to understand what does it mean if I, um, you know, build this new coal plant versus build a solar farm. Like, what does that mean? What What is the marginal cost of, of building each of these 
projects in terms of the impact on society. And that's just one example. I mean, energy is a, a, a very easy example to pick, but there's countless decisions that governments are making that are potentially locking us into fossil fuel um, emissions or allowing us to, to reduce those going forward. And so I, I think it's some of the key challenges are trying to link the very sophisticated climate science that we have today mm -hmm. um, and the, the kind of like long history of um, social science and economics and oftentimes those there's those are two totally disparate fields, and it's left for people to kind of draw um, uh, qualitative links between the two. They say, "All right, look, we know that uh, heat waves are bad for people, and and we can see that heat waves are increasing in this region in the future. So, like, that's bad, and that's a great first step. But then when people are making, when when individuals and governments and and businesses are making crucial decisions." they often do that based on some sort of quantitative data. Like, do we think this is going to be a risky decision or a smart decision? And so trying to link those two disparate fields in a quantitative way, I think is has a lot of power to, to um, influence the way some of these larger organizations are acting with respect to climate change. Yeah, so I mean, I think about, um, like we're talking about earlier, like on the individual level, you say, okay, well, what can I do as an individual? Well, I, in particular, and not really in a position of power to make any large, impactful decisions. You know, I don't have billions of dollars of capital to go build a solar farm or to, you know, do anything of that scale. But maybe if the podcast keeps growing, yeah. may, maybe, maybe <laughs> if I get to if I, all, all seven billion people on Earth listen to it. Um, but, you know, but at the same time, I, I think it's easy to forget, like we were talking about, like, governments making decisions um it's really people who are representatives yeah. that make up the government that are making those decisions so it's still individuals that need that data to make those decisions so like it seems like that's kind of where you come in to say you know i say you i mean you and your compatriots yeah. your colleagues yeah um no, it's, it's all on you, Ian. Like, <laughs> the world is now yours to save. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, because it's, you know, you see this, I think we think about, or maybe it's we, that we aspire or hope that our leaders are more intelligent than us. And sometimes they'll make decisions that we don't agree with. And sometimes they're right, sometimes they're not. But I think it's like we hope that they're more intelligent than us and can make better decisions than us. But at the same time, if they don't, they can only make decisions as good as the data they have to work with. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is that is like the best case scenario. <laughs> it's not always the case that those decisions get made with the best. Right. Data. And I, but I, and I, I, I joke about that, but I think that's also kind of, going back to the beginning of our conversation, like a key reason that messaging and setting up your data in the right context to make people understand what it means for them uh, is super important. Because I think we're, we're human beings, we're like emotional, we make decisions based on what we feel frequently. And it's, if you strongly feel one thing, it's easy to ignore data if that data isn't kind of like relevant and present in mind in terms of how how it's affecting your actions mm -hmm. and so i think 
I think you're right that in the ideal situation, our leaders are making decisions based on the data that's in front of them. And that's not always the case and it's not always their fault, right? It's, it's right. they have so much data to process about so many different um, challenges that the world is facing or that their particular area is facing um, that you need to make sure that the ones that are important like connect with them in, in the right way. So I think that's, that's, that's kind of one point. And the other, I think is just that, like, I, I think you're, you're, you're bringing up something pretty valuable, which is like, as an individual, some of the strongest things, you, there's a lot of things you can do as an individual that kind of reduce your own carbon footprint. And I think that uh, I would a hundred percent advocate for, for those actions. Um, but ultimately it takes collective action. Um, mm -hmm. You know, People composting more is fantastic. It's not going to solve the climate crisis um, on an individual level. It's going to take larger, larger collective action. And so, in many ways, the strongest thing you can do as an individual is be, um, be informed and to make your voice heard as much as possible. Um, and that's by voting. That's by um, uh, uh, expressing your opinion to elected representatives. Um, you know, supporting groups that that uh, advocate for the positions that you believe in, um, et cetera. And so some of the some of the work I've done, I, we were talking about this a little bit before mm -hmm. the podcast, but um, some of the work I've done is to try and make these this climate impacts um, information uh, accessible and available to individuals um, alongside our approach that kind of tries to produce data for governments and for larger institutions to make decisions with. And so, partnered with um, Protect Our Winters, which is a, um, uh, uh, a nonprofit uh, that works with a lot of um, outdoor athletes. It was founded by Jeremy Jones, professional snowboarder. Um, and so they do a lot of uh, education of climate issues among the um, uh, outdoor recreation, outdoor sports um, community. Mm -hmm. And so we started hosting some um, talks on climate, like what what, what are the local impacts of climate? How is climate change going to affect our local um, environment? What does that mean for, for the economy, for um, health, for all, everything that we care about from a local community? Mm -hmm. And then finally, what, what can we do about it? How can we get involved? Um, and so, so POW, Protect Our Winters, has been doing this for a few years. Um, and my colleague, um, Joanna Carey, and I um, got some funding from the American Geophysical Union to join forces with them and to, to kind of expand the reach of these um, talks that they're hosting at ski areas around the country. Mm. Started to do that this year and, and had a very successful one out in Reno. Um, and then COVID came along and, and there's been no more <laughs> gatherings since then. But I think it's a crucial, I, I, I try to budget a fair amount of time. It's hard right now while I'm trying to graduate, but in general, try to budget a fair amount of time to working to make, to, to make the, the research that we're doing accessible and available to individuals and the broader community rather than simply like organizations making large scale decisions because those individuals influence those large scale decision making. Right. Uh, and it kind of told it, it, nothing will happen at the institutional level until there's enough collective um, opinions and pressure at, at the individual level to make that happen. Um, so, yeah. so, so I'm wondering like at, at, uh, one of the conferences for protect our winter winters. Yeah. Um, I assume you have like speakers and stuff. Yeah. You know, this is goes back to me, me referring to it as marketing, but like, I'm just thinking about like if, um, 
So if you're doing, you know, um, a conference for, say, other PhD students, it's going to be a certain kind of presenting. Like, here's the research, here's the data we went through, and this is our method. Like, you're, it's a very, I'll call it dry um, <laughs> presentation, but because you're, you know, you're speaking to a highly educated and specialized audience that is able to digest that information. But like, if you go, like, if instead, you know, instead of over Skype, we were having this conversation in my front yard and people were walking by and stopping to listen to us chat. They might go, I don't know what Ian's talking about because I'm just coming in the middle of this. I don't have any information. And you're trying to, you're like trying to present charts. So do you, for a conference like Protect Our Winters, do you try to make um, the presentations, for lack of a better term, sexy? Or, or how does that you know, conference come together when you're trying to present to, um, like laymen basically. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a really good question. Uh, and I think again, yeah, you're right. It goes back to the beginning of our conversation, which is like, how do you tune the message to the, the people that you're speaking to so that the, the impact of what you're trying to say comes through, um, because it, it won't necessarily be impactful to, to different groups of people. Um, so the way we, uh, uh, the way we structured these and they were, they were talks, they were like hour long, um, there was like happy hour, food and drinks, and people came mm -hmm. and, and, and listened to folks. And then they were then there was Q and A. So it was like I think it was important for us to make sure that the audience was engaging and not mm -hmm. necessarily being talked at because you're going to miss people. Even if you think you kind of like tailored the message in the right way, you're going to miss people for sure. Yeah, not everybody kind of sees things in the same uh, in the same vein. So the way we structured it, we had somebody talking about physical changes to climate. And so what does it mean in the local region? Are we going to have more rain, less rain, more intense rain, more snow, less snow, et cetera. Um, we had one person who focused on the social science side. So somebody who worked on water rights in this particular case, but other people that worked on, you know, impacts to the outdoor industry or impacts to um, local health, et cetera. Uh, and then we had um, folks that worked in local businesses. Um, so folks that worked in, in this case, it was, it was outdoor recreation and tourism and trying to, trying to get their perspective um, to hopefully make that connection with people who are living and working in that area being like, oh, this is, a, this is a business that works in my local area and this is how they're thinking about climate change and what they're planning to do to adapt to it, um, what it means for them. Uh, <clears throat> and then finally, because of POW's connection, we had athletes, um, winter athletes that came and that talked about how it's influenced their um, their sport and the activities that they do as a profession and, mm -hmm. and that hope, hopes to uh, make things a little sexier, as, <laughs> as you suggested, and also connect things to, to the sports that, every, that people in this particular audience um, happen, to be, happen to be participating in. But yeah, the talks were, were nothing like um, a scientific conference. It was, mm -hmm. it was um, we, did flat, we did five minute talks where, where each person would kind of show a couple slides and talk about how climate change enters into the work they do. And then we we I moderated a little discussion, and then there was there was some Q and A. So it was trying to again trying to tailor to to the audience at hand, and um, it's 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 a work in progress. Scientists are never great at that. We're always we we're used to we do a lot of conferences, and we're used to kind of the same style of presentation. Mm -hmm. It's it's tough to to switch that around, but I think incredibly meaningful. And the most successful scientists are the ones that are best able to communicate their work to the broader audiences because. That, they're, that means they're doing relevant work and, and right. understanding how um, to, to communicate that work to, to other people. Yeah, well, that's, 
this is kind of a sidebar, but that's one of my like many many missions of this podcast is basically to give a voice to people like you that wouldn't necessarily be heard by a larger audience, assuming you don't want to just go out and grow your own social media audience and be able to help try to translate some of the jargon into like more understandable bite-sized pieces. Not that people listening to the podcast are dumb by any stretch of the imagination, but there are so many different topics that we talk about. Oh yeah. That it's like, you know, it's hard it's hard to digest all the information, you know, just anytime you're talking to, especially when you're talking to somebody who is very specialized, sometimes if they're not used to talking to laymen like me, then it's, it becomes a matter of um, speaking like they always speak to their peers. As a good example, um, the very first 400 level math class I took in college was taught by a brand new professor. This is first year teaching. Um, and the, we were taking analysis and the that class was his PhD field. So he's very deep into it. Yeah. And I almost failed that class. And afterwards, much to my chagrin, he let us know, I'm sorry, I think I taught that at a graduate level, not at an undergraduate level. Like, it, because because he was so deep in it, it was hard for him to step back and be like, oh, you have absolutely no idea what's going on. Like, the first day of class was simply, he walked in, he did not say hi, he just began writing on the board, and away we went. Yeah. And, and that's how it feels. Like, it's like trying to drink from a fire hose sometimes when you're speaking to somebody that's so in-depth in a particular topic. So this... yeah. I think that's 100% true. And uh, having listened to a, a few of the podcasts previously, I've, I'm impressed by the what your guests have done to to make sure that they're the thing they specialize in is communicable to, to everybody. Yeah. I've definitely learned things from the um, particularly the like sports performance and nutrition and, and yeah. mental side of things. That was cool to listen to. But yeah, I think it's not just scientists. I mean, everybody you know, if you've been working in a field for 20 years, like you've got the jargon down, it's it's mm-hmm. hard for you to kind of like uh, communicate when, you, when you're talking about, I mean, people communicate about all kinds of daily things. Fine. You know, I have no problem having a conversation about the weather. With right. Like right. That. But, uh, uh, but when you talk about the thing that you're particularly um, invested in and knowledgeable about, there's often like very precise language that you use because the challenges that you're talking about are very nuanced. Um, mm. Like it's a, you know, you're deep into this field and so you want to be precise with what you're saying. Uh, and, but that, that's just like not jargon that people use um, uh, in other fields and in other contexts in life. And so mm. it's not just science, but science happens to be, you know, a very technical field most times. And so it often, it comes off as the most hard to, to penetrate when somebody is not able to communicate that uh, in a kind of more general way. Yeah. So, so I, I don't want to miss this kind of question or thought I've I've written down. So is, is the whole idea here in part because this is such a large idea and there's a lot to kind of wrap your head around as somebody, again, if we come at it from the perspective of, I know nothing um, and I'm presented with this idea that we, you know, we as humanity are affecting our climate um on this 
giant ball we live on. Is it a matter of we're having a tough time as individuals digesting the information or are there larger, I'll say forces, but I don't mean like malevolent forces at work. Are there larger forces and complications to why it's so difficult to enact change? Yeah, I, that's, that's, (laughs) yeah, that's a very big question. (laughs) I know. Um, and, uh, I, I, I will kind of, you know, throughout the caveat that this is, you know, this is my personal opinion. I'm not representing anybody right. here. Right. Right. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that one of the biggest challenges is inertia, like inertia in all kinds of our systems. So in our economic system, we've built up um, a like very substantial structure that um, relies on burning fossil fuels. And we've mm-hmm. done that over the course of many decades in which we didn't necessarily um, see this to be a problem. Right. And we've created not only infrastructure, but also um, like government and power structures that favor the continuation of um, kind of the status quo. And so mm-hmm. that's not to say that it's impossible or improbable even that we can turn that around. But it's very, as we've seen over the past several decades, it hasn't been a question of better climate science. It's been a question of um moving the needle in the policy and the business worlds. Um, and so there certainly are larger forces at work. And I think the primary culprit, I think, is just inertia. We, we you know, we know, we understand the world as we see it right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, 30 years ago, we understood the world as we see it right then. And we kind of develop our society based on what we believe to be kind of the best way to do so. And for a while, we believe that to be fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, there's obviously um, issues with fossil fuel companies burying evidence that it was um, affecting the climate. Oh, God, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's gone. Uh, Yeah, so, but it's not, you know, you say, you say there's no malevolent forces. I I think in general, that's probably true, but there's definitely businesses and corporations looking out for their best interest, which goes, which often is... um, not in, consistent with improving overall welfare for humanity. Mm-hmm. So that's, we've put a ton of power in the hands of corporations. Um, and like, I'm not going to say that that's all bad. I mean, there's been a lot of benefit that's come out of that, but it has kind of a lot, enabled a situation in which corporations looking out for their own best interests can be, can cause harm to the broader society. And so that's kind of, I think, one of the main challenges but I, I will kind of like to, to flip that around to a positive note i think the incentive structures are lining up more and more these days for some of the larger um organizations particularly financial institutions to better understand what the risks of climate change are and so i don't, I don't know if you saw the like um uh the blackrock letter to shareholders recently where they kind of like fundamentally changed their stance on kind of not incorporating climate change into their decision making mm-hmm. and started to to outline a, a pretty substantial plan about how how climate risk was going to um, influence essentially every decision they make from here on out and was going to result in a very substantial reallocation of capital over the course of several years. And then they're not alone in that. There was, um, was it Microsoft recently came out and said that they're going to try to um, uh, remove all of 
their his, all of the emissions they have generated since the beginning of their company um, by, I don't know, 2030 or something like that. So there's 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 pressure from the public um, as well as just business incentives that are well aligning for some of these larger corporations to um, kind of shift the way they operate. So I I I, I don't want to end on a, a doom and gloom standpoint. I think there I think we're we're definitely at a transition point, and who knows what COVID has thrown into that what sort of wrench COVID's thrown into that transition. But, you know, a month ago, I would have told you, you know, this is this is something that's happening and, and changing, not over the course of the last five years, 10 years, but like really in the last year or two is, is we've, we've, we've definitely seen a, a very substantial shift in, um, in the business community and to some degree in, in government as well. Well, you know, I almost, I almost think about it as a matter of this is an opportunity, especially if, if economic devastation is as high as some people are predicting um, and, you know, people are throwing the R word around. Some people are throwing the D word around. I won't quite say it just yet. <laughs> um, but because we don't know how many people will get hired back as, you know, things kind of subside. That's going to be a large factor in how many businesses will go out of, out of business. But regardless of that, in, in, even if it was just, say, a, a normal recession, it's in some ways a, the ability to start over where it's like you have less inertia, as you mentioned, in a particular direction because those methods and modes of industry have stopped. So then yep. you can say, okay, we have to reallocate capital in new ways. So why don't we go ahead and do something that has, you know, the possibility of longer lasting, you know, through business cycles and into the future, which can be renewables and some of these things that get us away from um, more of the negative impact kind of things uh, that we do now, especially the, you know, our dependence on fossil fuels. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I, again, maybe it's just my, my tendency towards optimism. optimism. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I try to think about it and like, yes, this is a, it's a terrible situation. And uh, I guess I spoke with earlier today who um, his, by the time this comes out, his episode will be out. It'll be the episode four years. Um, Christian Posh, he lives in Germany, and he was speaking to me about friends he has in Italy and how terrible it is there. Yeah. Um, so it's like this, in many situations in countries, it's a very horrific situation. But I guess I have a tendency to say, despite all the bad things that are happening, what good things can we find and do and actually you know, choose to focus on to move forward uh, that we wouldn't have had the opportunity to do otherwise. Yeah, I know. I think I think you've hit it on the head. That's like definitely <clears throat> the, ch the challenge is we need to make a lot of like very quick short term decisions like the stimulus. Right? right. Like that needed to be pushed through that. We could not delay that. Right. But it's so massive that this locks in decisions for a long period of time. And mm -hmm. so you have this decision that needs to be made very quickly. And you saw how much tension there was between the Republican and Democratic side being um, Republicans claiming that that Democrats were trying to throw in, um, you know, their policy agenda behind this stimulus um, and Democrats, you know, doing that, basically trying to say, look, we um, we believe that there should be like, I think, 
one of the things that was that was pointed to was um, uh, emissions regulations for airlines. And the point was like, we don't need this right now. We need money for the economy, which is which is being devastated by COVID. Um, and I mean, I can see both sides to it. Like, yes, this decision needs to happen right now. But like these these decisions lock us in for a long period of time because we're going to build this big stimulus and then we're going to be needing to not spend a ton of money once the economy like additional money like once things mm-hmm. start getting generated again so i think i think you're right in that um yeah i don't know i mean again the the, the primary concern right now is like how do we you know stop this spread and how do we protect society in the immediate term and like but once that is protected we need to like you're right that we have a somewhat of a blank slate and it just makes all of those decisions kind of like that much more consequential because either you're making a decision that locks us into going back to the status quo or you're given this kind of new opportunity to say maybe we do something different um and i think one of the strong um i think there was a lot of particularly in the renewable energy side there was a, a fair amount um of positives that were in that stimulus bill and i think it's one of the fastest growing sectors of the economy is, is this so-called green jobs. And so I think it would be kind of foolish to not um, push that in terms of how do we rebuild um, the economy moving forward. And so I, I think I'm, I'm optimistic that that will be, uh, that that will be kind of the result, like, like you're saying that, that from this clean slate, um, we'll be able to kind of like shift directions a little bit more smoothly um, because that inertia, some of that inertia has been removed. But it does mean that the the decisions that we make are kind of like more consequential in the next year or so. Yeah, well, it's like when we think about <clears throat> these these decisions and, and kind of how we get kind of locked into these tracks of, well, this is what we invested in, so this is what we're moving forward to. You know, it's like ideally we're always focusing on the long term because we're as a country, we're essentially one large business. Like that's when we're measuring our GDP and the economy. We're one large business. Like how does the country as a whole, how productive is it? You know, how productive is ours people, all those kind of things. So it's like as a business, you should be focusing on yes, like you want in this case, we need the immediate stimulus so that everything doesn't just blow up. And then after, you know, COVID is dealt with, then there's nothing left for people to do. That would be bad. But at the same time, if you're only always focused on putting out fires, like you don't have the ability to grow to your potential because you're not focused on, okay, we're going to have some short-term pain for that long-term gain. Yeah. And I think part of that is, this is outside of both our purviews, but I think part of that is simply our political cycle where it's like we have representatives we vote for to represent us in our government and they have cycles every two, four, six years, whatever it is. And so then they have to be focused on re-election, which means appeasing constituents in the short term instead of saying, no, this is our the better thing for the long term, even though it upsets you right now, like it will be get better for your children and your grandchildren. Like I think because of that societal constraint of, you know, essentially our governmental system and our, our electoral system, that sometimes derails us from making those investments. Yep. I, I, 
definitely have have kind of had similar thoughts yeah. along the way, and it's it's challenging because you know there's no perfect government out there, but <laughs> this, yeah. the the democratic system seems to work pretty well in general. But right. there's this like challenge of like how do you how do you value long term decisions? Um, and it's pretty hard given the incentive structure that that's out there right now. Yeah, uh, I, th I think one. I think it makes sense to categorize the the country as one large business. I think there are a lot of other ways to categorize. Uh, right. Think about it, and and I think I mean well, it's, I, it's a matter know, of like if you're a hammer, you see a nail. Like I do, I do business, so that's just yeah, yeah, no, totally. But I I I bring that up only because I think that that. Um, is a common way to to see it uh and is not necessarily always in line with like again improving societal welfare right um uh and so I, it's a lot of, it's not mine but it's a lot of people's job in the academic world and in, in the economic world to think about how do we value equality or inequality and um if the whole country is growing if the gdp is growing what does that mean are people mm -hmm. uh, living better lives, more fulfilling lives? Is, are there, is there more equality? How's the healthcare system? Like, what are, what, are, what are people kind of like, what is the overall welfare that people are experiencing in the society? And and I think it's it's often kind of like, <clears throat> you mentioned uh, uh, fear hammer, you see a nail, like that's, I mean, GDP is what we quantify most easily. And so right. that's the easiest thing to say, all right, look, GDP is increasing, that's, that's better. Um, and, uh, and I, that's often a good thing. I mean, um, it's, it's certainly, you can't say in a vacuum that that's a bad thing, but, um, there are obviously other factors to take into play when considering kind of what is the state of, of health of a society. Yeah. Um, we got a little off track. We're starting <laughs> to run a little out of time, but I, yeah. I do want to talk a little bit about this. So, um, I think I saw, and maybe this is the project you worked on with uh, Protect Our Winners, but since you are uh, a skier, what, you know, if it gets too hot and there's no more snow, am I going to see you, like, out on the, like, the sidewalk with the skis that have wheels on them, or, or like, what are you going to do? Oh, man. Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a legitimate question. Um, uh, our lab group, um, the, a group I work with called the Climate Impact Lab um, did kind of a, a, a quick study looking at ski towns across the U.S. and what the um, what percentage of days of current days below freezing would we expect to still have below freezing by 2050 by the end of the century? Um, and Truckee, California, which is kind of the closest to where I am right now and close to where I, I, I typically live for most of the winter, uh, was expected to see the the greatest drop in in days below freezing, and so. Being in California, being on the West Coast is is not the place to be in terms of um, having a, a positive outlook for future um, winter seasons. Uh, I think in the a little bit in the interior, um, in the Rockies and the Intermountain area as well, like um, the change won't be as substantial because the main trend we see is is increasing temperatures um, as far as precipitation goes. Um, there are in many cases trends towards more variable precipitation, but it's not necessarily true overall that we see strong evidence that there will be generally less or generally more precipitation in a place. So if you have a place like if you have a place like the Rockies, most of the ski areas in Colorado that is substantially below freezing during most of the winter, 
um, a small rise in temperature is not going to substantially affect their snowpack. Whereas out here, it's just going to mean a lot more rain. And that's obviously bad for skiing. It's also really bad for water resources. Um, mm -hmm. So we built this like very substantial infrastructure to provide water to California here. Um, but that relies um, to a large degree on the ability of snow to retain that winter precipitation when we get almost all of our precipitation in California and release it in the summer when it's like never raining. Um, and we simply don't have the, the, the reservoirs and the, the man-made capacity to make up for that if all of a sudden that winter precipitation is falling as rain and we aren't able to, to catch it or harness it. We're, we're essentially losing it. Um, so it's a big challenge. It's Skiing is obviously something that I think about personally a lot, but there's kind of like other major challenges that, that arise from changes to snowpack. I think that's, but I think that's like, like, like I said, it's, it's that, that, that marketing side of me. I think that's the sexy way you go in. You, you, you market it to affluent people to ski and, and, and try to make an impact and be like, well, you're not going to be able to ski anymore because like, <laughs> yes, it's, it's going to be gone. And then not only that, we're going to have a, more of a drought and you know, all these kind of things, this, the things that you study and you make it more, uh, hit home. And that's, I mean, that's, that's the, I know it is like marketers are vilified, but when they do their job right, they right. help, they help make, make you able to relate to the message. And that's basically, sometimes that is a matter of making you fearful. And in your case, probably for the right reasons, Yeah, you yeah. know, taking that message and being like, you should be afraid because these are the things that can happen and that can be get very bad for all of us. Yeah. I think, I think, there's there's often a debate in, in like climate communications world between whether fear is a good motivator or fear is kind of a, a paralyzer. Um, whether whether you should always end your end your messages with kind of like a, a positive note and say, all right, like look, but things are getting better, and then other people say, well, no, like actually you can motivate people if you like describe kind of the direness of the situation. And I don't know whether there's a right answer or a wrong answer, but it's definitely true that that for many people it's like you know, you need to be shown the, the scary side. And that kind of ties back to what we originally talked about, where I was mentioning trying to quantify both the the worst case scenario and the best case scenario. Like, it's hard to not say a single, it's hard for people not to hear a single message, like this is what's going to happen. But it is, I think, I think having at least two scenarios in mind is not too much for the average person to kind of like think about, like, how bad could this be? What are the opportunities for benefit? Um, and so I think both of those kind of a two pronged approach where, where you're presenting both the, the scary stuff and the like opportunities really helps people see um, kind of what impact their actions can have to kind of make that worst case scenario less likely and, and the best case scenario a little more likely. Yeah, I mean, so if you were coming at the if we were saying this is a product and I don't I don't typically like to use fear. I don't the things I sell aren't really fear based. Yeah. <laughs> um, like home security is fear based. You know, you, you, there's some fear there when you're selling home security system. But so if we were productizing um, climate change, basically what you would do, this very simple version is you would talk to your customer or which is, you know, all of society, all, <laughs> all the humans on the planet. Yep. And you, you would make them fearful of the things that could be, you know, go wrong and happen because of the things that we're doing. And then you would end your talk and say, but here's the things that we can do, and this is what you should go do. Yeah. And call, you know, end with it. It's called a call to action. 
when you're yep. like, here's all the things, here's what you should go do about it. And so I, I'm a believer, at least in some cases, um, that fear is a proper motivator uh, because I think generally speaking, it's easier for us to focus on negative things than positive things. Just look at the news cycle. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, so um, anyway, so what you probably didn't see with the episodes that Joe sent you to look at is that, so last year I was asking people about food. This year um, I'm asking all my guests a different, more nebulous question. Okay. And so what I'm asking is, what do you think the purpose of sport is? What is the purpose of sport? That is a great question. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is kind of twofold. One is uh, to uh, help inspire people to uh, understand kind of like the challenges that life brings and the benefits of persevering through those challenges. I think everybody likes the story of an underdog in sports. Mm -hmm. Everybody likes to see the struggles that somebody went through and then an ultimate to like ultimately wind up as a champion. Mm -hmm. Everybody hates the Yankees, right? They always win. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies if you're from New York. <laughs> um, but uh, everybody hated the Warriors for three years. Uh, so like, I think the the stories that we gravitate to in sports are those that show us the value of uh, perseverance and show us how hard it can be to actually like do something meaningful and impactful and and mm. kind of like overcome those challenges. Um, and I think the second, at least, what I have gained out of sports. So I I do a lot of skiing now, which is um, in some ways an individual sport. I ski raced in. Um, up through high school and that was certainly individual but we, we we trained as a team we traveled as a team i played baseball in college and and the team part of sports is something that i has has always drawn me in and even in backcountry skiing it's it's uh incredibly it's a small team but it's people that you're relying on to save your life if need be and to make mm -hmm. smart decisions um and so i think in that case um at least some sports and, and a lot of the, the, the team oriented ones or the kind of like partnership oriented ones climbing went thrown there as well. Um, help us understand like what it means to like uh, how you get to a point at which the sum is bigger than the parts. Some is better than the parts. I, I'm, I'm not choosing the right words here, but it's how the do you start principle? Yeah. Yeah. Like how, like how do you, how do you cooperate with people and what does it mean to like, it teaches us that that relying on other people is not a bad thing. It's you know it, it lets you achieve much greater outcomes than if you try to go at it alone. Um, and that's something that honestly, like I don't think about every day, but I, I try to take into the academic world a lot with me because there's so much individualism in like doing the research that's in your lane that you are most familiar with, and it's really challenging to collaborate across disciplines. A lot of the work that I do in that our lab does is working across disciplines and, and there's so much challenge that comes from it, but we see examples of when it's worked really well and the impact that it's had. And it's kind of the same thing with sports. You know, you, you see examples of when all this hard work pays off and that motivates you and to say, all right, 
maybe I can work a little harder. Like I, I see the benefits at the end of the day. I see this person succeeding. And um, so anyway, it's long winded answer, but uh, maybe a little cheesy, but that, <laughs> that's no, it's, no, it's fine. You know, I, that's, it's sometimes I like to think about, again, this goes back to maybe my optimism, but sometimes I think I like to think about, um, you know, we think about ourselves as individuals, but sometimes i like to think about humans as a superorganism, where it's like, like you said, when, when we work together, we achieve much greater things than if we were all working individually in different directions. And it, like you said, the Gestalt principle being the, oh, I'm going to mess up the saying again, not mess, but the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. There, there we go. go. That was what I was looking for. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, sorry, Dr. Pat. I'm sure she'll be like, <laughs> I taught you this. Uh, <laughs> my, my other undergrad major was psychology. So, okay. Gotcha. Um, but so, yeah, I like to think about it that way just because it's, again, maybe it's like I said, tends towards that optimism where it's like we can achieve great things when we put our minds together and collectively work towards a common goal. You know, it's just kind of my desire to believe in the human spirit. So I, yeah. I'll certainly agree with you there. What uh, have you given answers to this question yet? Uh, no, I have not given an answer to this question yet. I, it, we will see. The um the I guess I'll say the purpose of my asking this question is my intention is to um hopefully I'm a busy guy so we'll see help my follow through here um <laughs> hopefully collate everybody's answers and I'll get back to get I'll I'll get back in touch with everybody at the end of the year um and then uh package it all together and write a book around the subject. Cool. Yeah. So my answer will certainly be within that. Yeah that context but i'd like to see kind of what everybody else is talking about and then that will give me things to dive into yeah that sounds really fascinating so see that book. yeah <laughs> count, me as, count me as one potential you know customer <laughs> okay okay yeah i don't know how like i said it's just an inkling of an idea right now yeah um but it's something and again it comes back it come, a little bit comes back to the marketing side of it and we'll have to sign off here soon because i'm sure i'm gonna get real boring real quick but, <laughs> but it's a matter of like how do i structure the book so people actually want to read it yeah yeah you know and you can take that topic and do it in different ways but anyway um ian thanks for spending time with me today um i'm hopefully you have better weather where you are in california than uh here with my like dreary 30 rainy day uh -huh. uh, in kansas city so <laughs> yeah yeah uh, it's it's sunny out here and that's uh, uh, California for you. <laughs> Yo. All right, man. Uh, it was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to to chat with you. Absolutely. Take care. All right. Bye.